you have your Bibles, would you take them out and turn to the book of Genesis, chapter 35, today? This December, we've been looking at various passages in the book of Genesis, going back to the beginning of the story and asking the question, how do these stories help to prepare us for the coming of Christ? How did they help foreshadow even way back then in those days, foreshadow what the person and the work of Jesus would be like. And how can they help us today as we're preparing our own hearts for Christmas, even in the midst of all the busyness that this season brings, preparing ourselves to worship our Savior? How can these stories, all the way back in Genesis, help us with that? And so we've looked at a couple passages so far. Two weeks ago we were in Genesis chapter 3, where we saw not only the first temptation and the first sin, But we also saw the first instance of God's grace. And we saw the first promise that God himself would take the responsibility to redeem what had been broken by human sin. That he would send a Messiah and a Redeemer, a Savior, who would deal with the problem of sin that had been introduced in that first fall. Last week we were in Genesis chapter 22. We saw that uh, story of Abraham being called to sacrifice his son Isaac going up the mountain and saw how even that foreshadowed for us the work of Christ, that he, too, would climb a mountain, offer a sacrifice, and that God would, in fact, fulfill the promise that he would provide the lamb for the offering. And today we're going to look at Genesis 35. This is one of the stories of Jacob. It's really the last story that we see where Jacob is the main character. He is the uh, son of Isaac, the grandson of Abraham, and the father of Joseph, who will dominate the rest of the book of Genesis. But our goal, again, as we look at Genesis, even though these are not the traditional Christmas stories, nevertheless, the goal is that that these will help us prepare for Christmas, to show us what Christ does and who he is for us. And so Genesis 35, verses 1 through 15, and let me ask you today, if you're able, would you join me in standing for the reading of God's word? Genesis chapter 35, starting in verse 1. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household, to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you, and purify yourselves, and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is, Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called its name Alan Bakuth. And God appeared again to Jacob when he came from Paddan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. 
a nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. Let's pray one more time. Father, this is your word which is given to make us wise for salvation, which is given to point our hearts to our Savior Jesus Christ, to expose our own need for a Savior, and at the same time to give the promise that a Savior is exactly what you've given us in Jesus Christ that you have provided for us the lamb for the offering to take away our sins. And so we pray that even in this portion of your word, that your spirit will be at work in our hearts to open our eyes, that we might see our king high and lifted up, and that as he is exalted, he will draw all men to himself. For it's in his name, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen. Please be seated. For our confession, or our assurance, rather, of pardon this morning, we were reading from Matthew chapter 1, one of the traditional texts of Christmas time, the beginning of Matthew's explanation of the birth of Jesus, of how uh, Joseph would find his wife, Mary, to be pregnant, and at the same time, an angel would appear to him in a dream and say, don't freak out about this, don't worry, this is God's doing. And the angel would speak to him and tell him that the child to be born is from God that he should call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And Matthew adds that this was to fulfill the prophecy given in Isaiah that his name would be called Emmanuel, God with us. That name of Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, is one of the great treasures that we celebrate at Christmas time. We sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel. We, We celebrate this great truth that in the birth of Jesus, God indeed has come to dwell with us, that that he is here. He would make his home among us, Emmanuel. It's one of the most treasured names of Jesus that we have. And that's why we sing about this truth, that God is with us. That Jesus Christ, who was in the very form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. Made himself nothing, taking the very form of a servant, being made in human likeness. He became obedient to death, even death on the cross. That Jesus would come and be born among us, live as one of us, grow up among us, and walk as a human to know our suffering, to know our own sorrows. This is what we celebrate at Christmas. And this is the hope of our salvation. This most unlikely blessing that that God himself would be with us, even when we were yet sinners, to send his own son to walk among us, to heal us, to be killed on our behalf. That's the great truth, God with us. And even though we are celebrating this at Christmas time, and perhaps our, our thoughts immediately will go to Jesus in the manger, Emmanuel, God with us, nevertheless, even in the Old Testament, we see that the Old Testament saints, they celebrated this too. They knew this reality, that God was their God. He was with them. That was the great promise of God's covenant, that he would be with his people, that he would be their God that they would be his people, that he would be with them. They didn't know it perhaps to the same degree as the believers after the birth of Jesus did, but that was still their hope, that God was with 
them. And even as we look at the story of Jacob here in Genesis 35, the last story of Jacob's life, I find the main message of this passage is in verse 3. Look at verse 3. This is what Jacob says. Let us arise and go up to Bethel, that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. Jacob's great hope is he has been called by the Lord to go worship. He says, let us worship this God who has answered me in the day of my distress and he has been with me wherever I have gone. Jacob is going to worship Emmanuel, God with us. That is his great hope that he holds out as he goes to worship. That's the main message of this text, is that Jacob worships Emmanuel, the God who is with us. And I believe as we look at Jacob's encounter with this God, that it can help us as we prepare our hearts to encounter the same God at Christmas time this year. I see three things in this text that I want you to see as well. First, that God is pursuing Jacob still. Second, that worship begins with the putting away of foreign gods. And third, I want us to see the hope for Jacob at Christmas time. But first, what we see is that God is the one who's pursuing Jacob in this passage. God is the one who's pursuing him. If you notice in verse 1, this encounter with God takes place only because God has taken the initiative. It says, God said to Jacob. He's the one who begins the conversation. He comes to Jacob. In fact, if we were to look back at the story of Jacob's life, which we find roughly in sort of Genesis 25 to 35, there's three times that Jacob encounters the Lord, these big stories of God. And and all three of them, they happen because God takes the initiative. If we look back at Genesis 28, and you don't need to turn there now, but it's the encounter that, that Jacob has also at Bethel, the same place when he is traveling from Canaan to Paddan Aram, where he is going and uh, he lays his head on a rock in that place and he has a dream where God encounters him. He sees this stairway to heaven with the angels ascending up and down and God stands there next to him in the dream and says to him this promise, this land will be yours. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. He had that encounter only because God met him in the dream. He wasn't seeking the Lord. And then in chapter 32, the famous incident in the nighttime of Jacob wrestling by the river Jabbok with this man who just sort of mysteriously appears and comes and wrestles with Jacob. And we find out that is the angel of the Lord. It's the Lord himself who comes and wrestles with him all night. And we see in that. Jacob wasn't looking for that. Jacob wasn't pursuing the Lord intentionally at that time, but God would come to him. And now here we are in chapter 35. We're back at Bethel. And it's God who comes to him, and it's God who starts the conversation and says, Jacob, arise, go to Bethel, dwell there and make an altar. God is pursuing Jacob, but we have to ask, why does he do that? Why is God so interested in Jacob? Jacob is not the most upstanding character in the Bible, not by a long shot. In fact, if you read the stories of Jacob, you get this very mixed picture of him. If you're looking for someone as a a hero, say, don't look to Jacob. His name, his very name, means deceiver, the one who grasps the heel because he deceived his brother. He stole Esau's birthright. He tricked him out of it. He would later steal the blessing from Esau 
Remember, he dressed up in a sort of a fuzzy sweater to, to trick his father into thinking he was Esau. He stole the, the birthright. Later, he stole the blessing. Uh, he gained great riches from his father-in-law Laban because he tricked him out of it. He tricked him out of the best part of his flocks and his herds. This is, this is a man whose name means deceiver, and we see it confirmed over and over again in his life, that he is a deceiver. That's who he is. Until the Lord will come and change his name and say, you're no longer Jacob. You're no longer deceiver. Now you're Israel, he who strives with God. And so we get this mixed picture of Jacob. He's not a, a saint in the way we would think of it, but at each turn, God is pursuing Jacob. His whole life, God is pursuing him. In fact, one interesting thing we see is that each time God will have these encounters with Jacob and pursue him, each time, Jacob is on the run from somebody. Someone is trying to kill him, and he is fleeing from them, and that's when God chooses to meet with Jacob. In chapter 28, the first thing is, is that Jacob has again deceived Esau. He's stolen the blessing, and Esau is so angry he wants to kill Jacob. And thankfully, their mother, Rebecca, gets word of it, and she loves Jacob, and she doesn't want him to die, so she, she makes this little plot and says, oh, oh, Isaac, her husband, I just couldn't stand it if Jacob would marry one of the women from around here. Send him away to Paddan Aram and tell him to find a wife there. And so he does, and Jacob is running from Esau. And that's when God encounters him with this vision of the staircase to heaven. Uh, in chapter 32, Jacob is again fleeing. He's, now he's gone out there and he's tricked Laban, his father-in-law, and now he's fleeing back to Canaan from Laban. And he's about to encounter Esau, his brother, who also wants to kill him. And so he's, he's actually stuck between two opposing parties who, who he's running from. And so he sends his wives and his children up ahead and he spends the night by himself by the river Jabbok, and that's when God encounters him. And now here in chapter 35, the previous chapter is all about the defiling of his sister Dinah. And then two of his brothers, Simeon and Levi, take revenge on the city of Shechem where they lived by killing all the males in the city and to avenge the death of their sister. And now Jacob is afraid for his life again that the inhabitants of the land are going to be angry at him because his brothers have done this. And so he's again running. See, every time that God is going to show up with these encounters to pursue Jacob and to reveal himself to him and to give him these promises, he's not doing that as a reward for Jacob's life. He's not looking around and saying, now this is a guy I can work with. He's not saying, Jacob, you have done so well, you have lived such an upstanding life that I will reveal myself to you. It's quite the opposite. He shows himself to Jacob at the time when Jacob is on the run, the time when he doesn't want to be found by anybody, when he's at his worst, when all his sins and deceit and trickery are about to catch up with him. And God will pursue him and find him and seek him out we can begin to understand something of why when, when Paul in the New Testament wants to teach us about the doctrine of election, this truth that, that God chooses us not based on anything he sees in us, but only out of his sovereign love, his sovereign grace that he has decided to save a people for himself, not because of good things done by us in righteousness. You can see why Paul would say, look at Jacob. God chose Jacob and not Esau, and Jacob was no better than anyone else. He was always on the run from somebody who he had offended. But what we see is good news for Jacob. God is still pursuing him. God still reveals himself to him. God has these great and precious promises that he is giving to Jacob and he will not let Jacob get away. 
he will continually come back, and it's good news for Jacob and everybody like Jacob, that God doesn't give up on his people. God does not give up on his people. He appears to Jacob and pursues him and comes after him. Here in chapter 35, at this point, Jacob's an older man. He's got a history. He has a past that he wouldn't want people to know about. God says, Jacob, arise, go, build an altar and worship. Let me give the promises again. Can you imagine what effect that must have had on Jacob's heart? After the life that he had lived, hear those words from God that God has not yet given up on him. You wonder if he looked back at his life and said, God had appeared to me as a youth. Why didn't I, why didn't I hold on to that? Did I give it all up? Did I, did I give up what God had given? But the answer is no. God is still pursuing him. And so he says, let's go and worship this God who is with me. This God who has rescued me from all of, in the day of my distress, he has answered. That's the good news of Christmas. Not only that Jesus is born, but that in seeing the birth of Jesus, we see this answer from God. Has he given up on his people? Has all of that sin been too much? And he's just said, that's enough. The answer, of course, is, is no. Not only has he not given up, but he's in fact moving forward. He's taking this greater step of commitment, sending his son to be God with us. God pursues Jacob and God pursues his people. And we see down here in verse 3 now that, well, the end of verse 2, really, worship begins with the putting away of the foreign gods. Worship begins with putting away the foreign gods. Note, here's Jacob's immediate response. God calls him. God begins this. He says, Jacob, go up to Bethel, make an altar and worship. And immediately in verse 2, so Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you. Purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go to Bethel. Worship begins with putting away the foreign gods. Perhaps you might wonder why does Jacob's family have foreign gods with them? What is that about? Where did they get them? Well, I don't know. We know they just have sacked the city of Shechem in the last chapter, so maybe they just picked up some of their gods. Maybe they were just doing a little looting while they were at it and took some of their gods for good luck, but But here's what we do know. We don't know where they got their gods, but we do know that throughout history, isn't it true that God's people are always prone to picking up a few foreign gods here and there? God's people are always prone to doing this. That's the way we we operate so often. Remember, even back at Mount Sinai, even while Moses was on the mountain himself getting the law from God, what were the people doing down below? Hey, guys, we could take this gold and make a golden calf. Why don't we just put this in the fire and... And God's people, no matter what stage in life, they're always picking up these foreign gods. So I don't think we should be too surprised if we know our own hearts, and and I hope we do, because we know how easy it is for us to pick up a foreign god or two along the way. For us, it's not the earrings that get us so much, at least not for me. But it's other things. We're tempted by the gods of wealth, the gods of respectability, the gods of honor and admiration. Before we know it, there's something like respect that's a good thing, but it becomes not just a good thing, it becomes the thing in life that gives life meaning for us. It becomes the thing without which we cannot be happy. If people in our chosen profession or our circle of friends don't think highly of us, we can't go on. 
And so we begin to make sacrifices. We begin to sacrifice our time, more of our energy, more of our money, if only people will think highly of us. These are our foreign gods. That sound familiar? If there's something in your life that you say, if I don't have this, if, if this doesn't come to pass for me, it just, I can't go on, and so I sacrifice my time in order to get that. See, that's how you know you've picked up a few foreign gods or two along the way. And worship always begins with putting those things away. Coming back to the one true God. See, we don't talk as much about this, but, but Christmas demands an ethical component. There's always an ethical component to Christmas. That if we are going to worship properly, the God who is Emmanuel, the God who is with us, it demands that, that we have to put away our foreign gods. See, we talk about this a lot. Many commentators have made this observation that, that one of the things that makes Christmas such an a easily celebrated holiday, the reason we can walk through purely secular public spaces and yet we hear music about Jesus, we hear this music even in, in all sorts of places about worshiping the baby Jesus. And, and it's so easy, in part because we never talk about the call to discipleship at Christmas. We talk about baby Jesus laying in the manger who, who seems to make no demands. Anybody can adore a cute little baby. That's why it's nice to walk around holding a cute little baby because people are drawn to that, naturally. But they're not as much drawn to a Jesus who says, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. We're not just naturally drawn to a Jesus who says to the rich young ruler, one thing you lack. Sell all of your possessions and give to the poor. Then come and follow me. See, there's, there's an ethical component here that before we can properly worship God who comes to us and who's with us, we need to put away the foreign gods. Jacob, in this chapter, I think he gets it just right because on the one hand, he perceives that, that all of this is grace. The God who is with him, the God who rescues him in the day of his distress, it's not because of anything in Jacob that caused God to choose him or to save him or to love him. It's purely of God's grace. And yet, at the same time, he also perceives that it's a costly grace. It's grace because it's the one true God who's inviting Jacob into his presence. But it's a costly grace because in order to do so, he has to be willing to put aside the foreign gods, perhaps that have meant so much to him, perhaps in whom he has put his hope it's grace because it's God, but it's costly because there's a call to discipleship that comes with it. See, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote these well-known words about this when he writes, Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it's grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It's costly because it costs a man his life. And yet it's grace because it gives a man the only true life. It's costly because it condemns sin. It's grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it's costly because it cost God the life of his son. You were bought at a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. And above all, it's grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. Costly grace is Emmanuel, God with us. It's grace because God comes freely to us and chooses us for nothing in ourselves. 
And yet it's costly because to worship Emmanuel means we must put aside any competing gods in our lives. He's not just talking here about sort of the the one-time, initial, beginning repentance of the Christian life. This is God coming to Jacob a third time. Who knows how many other little times were not recorded over and over and saying, Jacob, come and worship and be free of the false gods. Jacob, come again. Worship again. Be free again of the false gods. Put them away for the second time, the third time, the fifth time. Put them away once again. The call to worship God always begins with this call to put away the foreign gods. And at Christmas, let's remember that although it's, it's natural for us to come and to adore a baby, born in a manger, and it's a wonderful time to, to think that that baby is God to be born among us, we also remember that to worship him rightly is not simply to sing songs, it's not simply to get in the Christmas spirit, but to worship Jesus rightly means putting away your sins. He's putting off the old man. Put on the new man. Let us put aside everything that hinders. And so run with perseverance the race marked out for us. It's grace, but there is a cost. And so we see here that, that God pursues Jacob. We see that the first step in worshiping this God is to put away our foreign gods. But I want us also to see the hope. The hope that's in this passage for Jacob and the hope that's here for for all of us at Christmas. I want to look at the, the promises that God gives again to Jacob that are in verses 10 and 12. When God reveals himself to him in verse 10, God says, Your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. In the Hebrew, that's El Shaddai. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. I want us to hear those promises. For some of us, that's familiar territory. We hear that. We recognize, okay, God gave that promise to Abraham. That was sort of the initial call. And he gave it to Isaac. He gives it now. To Jacob, but I want us to put ourselves in Jacob's shoes and to imagine how he would hear a promise like this. Remember, at that time, Jacob and his family, on all the earth, they were the only family that worshipped God. They lived in the midst of this pagan culture. They lived among a people who did not value what they valued. They lived among a people who did not love what they loved. They lived among this people who didn't share any of their views of what is good in life and what's important and what we should be working for and how we raise our kids. They lived among this just pagan land. And, and I, I think of that and I remember, you know, on the one hand, Genesis, it can feel pretty foreign and it can feel pretty distant. But at the same time, we have to recognize that not that much has changed. Because don't we sometimes feel that same way? Can you imagine how difficult it was for Jacob to live in that land? Chapter 34, his, his sister, his sister was just defiled by the people of the land. Jacob again is on the run. He's been on the run his whole life, and now again he's on the run because they got tangled up with these unbelievers. And now he's afraid that they want to pursue him and kill him. Can you imagine how lonely it must have felt for Jacob? 
Can you imagine how hopeless it must have seemed that they were just this one little family trying to hold out this hope that someday God was going to make it all right, that someday their God, the one true God, would, would, would do something for them, would make life easier for them, and yet they struggled in the midst of this broken land. You see, and that's where God's promise comes in. Yes, this is the same promise that he gave to Jacob's grandfather, Abraham, and that he repeated to Jacob's father, Isaac. This promise that, yes, God is starting with something very small, starting with one man, Abraham, and turning him into a small family. And now that's where the promise stands. It's one family in the midst of all the earth. The promise is that though he starts with something small, it's going to continue to grow. That under God's watchful, sovereign providence, under his careful hand, it's going to continue to grow. They will soon be not just one family, but a nation. Even at the beginning of Exodus, there's over a million of them. And he says to them that it's going to spread. This work he's doing is going to take over. Eventually it will be a whole nation. Indeed, he says it will be companies of nations. He says, yes, Jacob, you are feeling small and oppressed right now and you find it difficult to be faithful in the midst of this foreign pagan land. But God is at work. And slowly but surely he is growing his kingdom. Slowly but surely in his own way and at his own pace and with his own methods. And the promise is that one day, Jacob, God's kingdom is going to fill the earth. God's kingdom is going to be everywhere you look. He will be the one who is worshipped by all people. Yes, it, it seems small right now. You look around and you see sin and violence and brokenness and sadness and tears. Here's the promise to Jacob that one day you will look around and all of that will be gone. That God is at work redeeming everything that is broken and sad and sinful. And although it looks small, one day God will bring it all to fulfillment. And we read in the book of Revelation the fulfillment of those promises. When we read about a great multitude before the throne of Jesus worshiping him. And it's a multitude that cannot be numbered. It's like the sand on the seashore, like the stars in the skies. Thousands upon thousands and myriads upon myriads. And all of them are worshiping before the throne of Jesus. And Jesus Christ himself rules and is all in all. As, as he's promised here to Jacob, Jacob, kings are going to come from you. And not just kings, but the king of kings would come and he will one day rule with justice and with righteousness and with faithfulness. And Jacob, I know it's hard to live now, but look towards the great hope that is ours. Look towards that great day. These are the promises that God is with you. He is at work among you. That will be the great promise. And, and even for us today, we're not there yet. We can look around and we can see, okay, the kingdom of God is, is wider and broader than it was then. There are Christians all over the world now, but still, we're not there yet. Hebrews taps into this a little bit in the first chapter, or the second chapter, rather. When it, when it says, it reminds us, it tells us, all things have been put in subjection to Jesus, presently. But then he's, he goes on and he says, at present, we don't yet see everything as though it's in subjection to him. But we see him. That is, we don't see everything being made the way it's supposed to be, but we do see Jesus. Crowned 
with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. We look around and this is our hope. We don't, no, we don't see the world the way it's supposed to be, not yet. But we see Jesus. We see the God who is with us, who is faithful to these promises, who, who many, many generations after Jacob would come and he would be the king who would live among his people. He would be the one who would taste death for them and so be crowned with glory and honor. He will be the one who would take all of our sin and sadness onto himself so that we could be redeemed from it. Is the great hope at Christmas is we continue to look forward. We continue to look for that great day when his redemption is complete and sin and sadness is gone and Jesus will rule over all in all. That's, that's the hope for Jacob and that's the hope for us at Christmas. God continues to pursue his people still. Because of his sovereign love for his people, he pursues us and he calls us. Will you at Christmas time put away the foreign gods? Then he says to us, continue to look forward. Continue to look for that day. Don't despair. Put your faith and your hope in Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we, like Jacob, often walk in the midst of the far country, not knowing where we're going, not always knowing where we've been, but Father, we long for that great day when with all the saints we will gather around the throne of Christ to worship him who will be all in all, who will rule with justice and with equity, with his staff of righteousness, he will rule the nations. Lord, we ask that that this year at Christmas, will you dig this hope deeper into our hearts. Lord, at Christmas, when we see brokenness, may you point us to Christ. When we say we don't see everything in subjection to him, may we see him. May the eyes of our hearts be drawn to Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. We ask that by the power of your Spirit, you will press these truths and this glorious grace onto our heart. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.